Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A. Coming out of both the Long Beach Grand Prix and the Indy Open Test at the end of last week. Big thanks to all of you for the questions you have sent in. Thank you as well to our pal Jerry Siddeth who puts them together for me. And then finally, massive appreciation for our friends at Cooper Tires. Those fine folks who, beyond their road car vehicles, also power the USF Championships. The first three steps of the American Open Wheel Ladder. The Justice Brothers, makers of truly remarkable automotive chemicals and lubricants, widely used in motor racing as well. Our friends at torontomotorsports.com, purveyors of delightful motor racing memorabilia, and our new friends at Discount Tire, also heavily involved in the USF Championship. So this is a really beautiful assembly of friends and partners and supporters we have here all in this world you've helped me to create on this little podcast. So thank you. A couple of quick little things. Recording this on a Tuesday afternoon in California. Been working as quickly as I can since getting home from the Indy Open test. Uh, Oh boy. Yeah, that was a fun one. I'll tell you about that in just a sec. But uh, working as quickly as I can to get ready to fly out for Barber Motorsports Park this weekend. And wife and I just had a important appointment scheduled for Friday. Nothing bad, nothing scary or alarming, but uh, just an important appointment that we have had come up that we will both need to attend. Uh, so for the first time this year, I will not be covering an IndyCar event live and in person. So after canceling travel and whatnot and alerting a couple of folks, now I'm trying to figure out how can we still do some of the videos that we've been doing uh, during these opening rounds that uh, I've enjoyed and many of y'all have said, hey, keep doing them and do more of them. So trying to figure that part out, having to scramble a little bit. Wasn't planning to not be there this weekend. So yeah, hey, let's see if we can do some remote interviews keep doing at minimum the end of day driver interviews and such and go from there. So, uh, yeah, we'll see what we come up with. Hopefully it doesn't suck. So, Hey, in the open test Thursday, busy. We knew Friday was going to have rain. Didn't know if it was going to rain out the whole day. IndyCar ended up calling the day at, I think nine fifteen AM Eastern, something along those lines said, Hey, uh, we're done. Test is over. Great rescheduled my flight home was originally scheduled to fly out at 7 p.m eastern and get home at roughly 10 o'clock pacific like fantastic get some work done here but found a flight leaving at 3 p.m yes and landing at 7 p.m even better so was so excited to be getting home at a earlier hour for sure friday evening have more time with my wife other plan with the original flight yeah with all the time it takes to get uh luggage at the oakland airport and travel time at blah 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 i wasn't going to get home until a little bit after 11 take a shower get you know whatever and it'd be midnight before i was presentable to properly say hello to my wife chabrell uh but hey fixed all that 3 p.m. out, 7 p.m. landing. We might even be able to watch a movie. Who knows? So, yeah. (laughs) Want to know what time I got home? Uh, I landed at 9.55 p.m. So, keeping in mind, the original flight was leaving at 7, getting home at 10. I managed to leave at 3 and arrive five minutes before the original flight was due to get there. Oh, friends. For those of you who know me, uh, listen to the podcast for a while or otherwise, you know that I'm a huge fan of Southwest, truly. Um, Oh, my people at Southwest, what has happened to you? Seemingly half of my flights this year between IndyCar, IMSA, and whatever else have been delayed, multiple cancellations, uh, just dumpster fire of a turnaround, a year-to-year turnaround. Like, I don't know what's happened, but... Anyways, so Friday was just one of those things where 
you have to laugh because otherwise you're going to go mental or, or break your hands punching things. So ended up spending almost three hours on the admittedly pretty toasty tarmac in Las Vegas. So change planes coming out of Indy, Las Vegas was meant to be a short turnaround that ended up getting delayed by about a half hour. Okay. And so that was 30 minutes of the three hour delay. And the other two and a half were spent on the tarmac and we had three, <laughs> three plane related issues and delays. So I was having to chuckle a little bit because saw Scott McLaughlin, the Indy open test. He had mentioned that he had a flight delay getting there for the same reason, plane problem. And I told him and his engineer friend, Ben Bretzman, like you have the bravest driver in IndyCar because they said, Hey, there's a problem with the plane. Uh, but Hey, get back on it. Cause we think it'll be okay. And you did. Well, I don't know if I'm brave or just dumb, but three times they didn't even tell us what the third one was. Uh, there was a problem that they found before we were supposed to leave the gate. That took an hour plus taxied away. Finally got out, I guess about ready to, uh, mash the throttle and take off some sort of alert there. So we ended up sitting out on the tarmac for a good long while, then ended up idling back to, I don't know if it was the same gate or not. That was another hour plus. Finally, when that was good to go, uh, went out and there was some other problem and they just didn't even bother telling us what that was. So, um, none of this is a complaint. I'm just trying to share what I thought was a decreasingly amusing story, but what I had to kind of chuckle at. So I'm like, come on, man. Uh, we got this great flight home early and this is going to be phenomenal. And yeah. So, uh, by the time I think I got to the baggage claim in Oakland, uh, it was, 10, 10, 10, 15, something like that. And then we had more fun with Southwest, which said, Hey, all your baggage is coming out. I think it was carousel six. Hey, uh, there's a text from Tino belly. I should put my ringer on not loud. Cause that's dumb. Um, and it went round and round and we stood there and waited and waited and waited. And I think we stood there for about a half an hour and nothing came out. And then luggage started coming out but only about half the people got their luggage. And so I think, I don't know, by about 45 minutes of standing there, <laughs> someone from Southwest came over and said, oh, well, you should go over to the baggage thing or the number five, because that's where the rest of the luggage is going to come from. I've never really heard of that before, y'all. Uh, they got the little sign saying, here's where you're coming from, and here's your flight number, and this is the little carousel where your luggage arrives. And so we all stood there. And then after standing there for a long time, they came over and said, oh, yeah, hey, guess what? We're going to kind of mix it up on you. So you're in the wrong spot. Those of you who haven't left with your luggage yet. And so we went over there and waited about, I don't know, another 10, 15 minutes, whatever. Um, and then finally being ready to, to go home, there was one more delay that added about 25 or 30 minutes. So I don't know the exact time. I got through the door, but it was pretty darn close to midnight. So best laid plans. Um, they don't always work out. Glad I got home. Oh, I was a grumpy fella though. And, uh, thankfully my amazing wife, uh, she did her usual thing of taking care of me and making sure that I was all good. And nonetheless ended up having a delightful weekend where I got some sleep and recharged my batteries all ready to go to barber but hey we're going to try and cover that remotely and hopefully amuse and entertain you so uh with all that said let's get rolling here with your questions and i'm going to get through as many as i can a lot of them are related to leftover or similar from long beach uh, some are open test related and so just going to wander through here get to as many as i can hopefully uh keep the show to about 60 minutes or so. And if you didn't get a chance to check out our racing family show from Monday night with, uh, Kyle Kirkwood and Connor Daly and Callum Eilat, if you need a laugh, uh, that might be the funniest episode of anything we've ever recorded. And, uh, not only did I, not only is that on Twitter spaces, if you'd prefer to consume it there, 
but I also uploaded that as a podcast as well. And it's just silly, but yeah, uh, I couldn't ask for anything more. Uh, why don't we start off with Glenn Locke? How you doing, Glenn? Says, is there any news whether the Indy 500 will have a aero package that might do like what we saw at the Texas race and increase the slingshot passes? So coming out of that test, we saw teams using the higher downforce options, but the thing that was a little bit of a, a wild card if not a major wild card, Glenn, was the amount of wind. And it wasn't just constant wind. It was all over the place wind. This direction, that direction, big gusts, 15 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour. It was just a huge variable. Now, granted, it could be that way when we get to race day. So maybe teams just learned a lot of invaluable things on that one day during the open test. But where it just added some complications, Glenn, which makes answering this question a little bit hard. Drivers I spoke with, folks that I spoke with, nobody really said, yep, got a great read, got a great feel for what this package can do, and I think the racing is going to be like this or like that. There really wasn't a lot of that coming out of the test, unfortunately, because of the wind being such a crazy variable. What I did get from folks was, boy, being third, fourth, fifth in a line, which has been pretty lethal the last year or two, um, not as bad. So there's some hope. And that's really, it's maybe not the slingshot type passing that we're, uh, that you're asking about, but that's been the main issue that has made significant portions of recent Indy 500s not crazy awesome with the turbulence coming off the cars just the natural disturbances aerodynamic disturbances coming off the cars not had a great ability for folks in a line like i said the second driver third driver they're okay but once you get beyond that everyone else is just in so much turbulence that makes it darn near impossible to try and pull out and do a pass and feel like the front of the car is going to be stable. The inklings that we got during this really windy test day with the added downforce included was it's better. That's what I hope. Not that we're going to have crazy cartoonish passes all of a sudden, but just more confidence given, greater downforce to work with increased driver confidence that their car will not be getting buffeted and thrown around in that aerodynamic wake as bad and then therefore hope to try and make passes more passes so again we usually tend to look towards the lead right who's up front second third who's chasing whom and and whatnot but we have the ability for those in eighth place, 15th, 22nd, whatever it might be, to be racy, to move forward. That's where I think we get a better Indy 500. That's where I think, I hope, uh, we have something where you go, okay, cool. More drivers can be involved in how the, the race is settled, not just the lucky couple who happen to be in relatively clean air towards the front. So, uh, that's the initial look. We're not going to get another look until official practice starts in, what, two and a half weeks, something like that, three weeks. So more to follow here. Glenn? Cy Harrison, appreciate you. You've been sending in questions of late, and thank you for joining us here. Should mention as well, if you're uh, looking for some friends, some racing friends, might send an email to prudayrocks at gmail.com. P-R-U-E-D-A-Y-R-O-C-K-S, Rocks at gmail.com. It's a listener group of more than 100 folks who've come together, just came together originally through the podcast, but they have just become great friends, interact regularly, privately, right? Discord, I think, is the main place. Might be a Twitter group as well. I'm not sure if that's still as active as it once was, but just looking for uh, folks to enjoy your racing with 
or add more folks to your uh, your own racing family, you might consider uh, joining. Uh, there's no money involved. There's no secret handshakes. Just a bunch of really good folks uh, who have come to care for that are uh, pretty darn positive and often hilarious. So, Sai, you say, MP, how long do you think Andretti will stick with Devlin DeFrancesco? If you look at other motorsports, such as F1, for example, you don't typically see the top teams running drivers who don't have the potential to be one of the best. And sadly, that seems to be the case with Devlin. Closed by saying, I know that he pays for his ride, but surely a top team such as Andretti could put that fourth car in better hands. So the answer to this, sigh is Devlin is known to have signed a two-year contract. The team confirmed that for me last summer. So 2022 being his rookie season, this year being the second and final year of this contract. Uh, it's, it's not uncommon for an Andretti Autosport, Chip Ganassi Racing. I think Penske might be the only one that really, to my recollection, at least as an adult, uh, I can't recall any time they've really taken a paying driver. So again, I don't know if they ever have, but if you look among the other top teams, that policy changed a couple years ago with what we now call Errol McLaren, but they were taking pay drivers, right? Marcus Erickson's introduction to IndyCar straight from five years of F1 came with bringing full funding there. Uh, full funding is brought to Ganassi. Others do as well. Um, we didn't know Marcus was going to be as good as he was when he arrived. But you look at someone like Devlin where you go, okay, coming in as a rookie, someone who did well but wasn't a crazy butt-kicking kid coming out of Indy Lights, you could see that there was hope that he would develop into something uh, front-running-esque. Hasn't happened yet. Um, could happen. Just we haven't seen that yet now, one year and three races into his IndyCar career. The thing really to take home here is when he signed his contract, this team was wholly owned by Michael Andretti. Uh, this is a kid who'd gone through the what we call the USF championships, right? Presented by Cooper Tires, what we now call Indy NXT as well by uh, by Firestone with Andretti, and so a developing, growing educational relationship here with Andretti, getting Devlin up the ladder and into IndyCar. A little bit, maybe halfway into last season, Michael had some major investors into his team. Major investors. And this has changed their approach. I know they really haven't spoken about this publicly. Uh, did an interview with them, I think, September last year. Still got to do something with that interview. and Had some gradual updates months following that, and even here very recently, their approach has changed from when Devlin signed. The approach is looking forward to 2024 and beyond. We want to go out and hire the best drivers possible. If you look at Kyle Kirkwood, Colton Herta, and this really reinvigorated Romain Grosjean, uh, you'd have to say they've got three drivers who can win for them at any race, take pole positions, you name it, right? Those three are what, currently 5th, 7th, and 8th in the championship, uh, and they've all had at least one dreadful event with the terrible points capturing there. So this team's on the rise. Looking at this new blended ownership and the rigorous expectations to have every entry capable of getting to victory lane would say that it just finds Devlin in a bit of a tough space, right? He's not someone in year one and a quarter or whatever he's at right now who's capable of matching the other three and producing at that podium and, and winning level. Give him another year, two years maybe. And I think we could see him playing more regularly in the top 10. See a podium guy and a race winner? I don't know. He hasn't told us that yet, right? You need not speculation but results to say, ooh, all right, that kid's headed there. We don't know if he's going to be that yet, but it's too early to write him off. But at least for the 
renewed direction of this team, Cy, with the new blended ownership, they're not waiting to see if someone could do that in the fourth car. All right, and we're back. I've just gone for about an hour, actually, uh, on a call with a producer from HBO's Real Sports with Bryant Gumble. They're doing a, a pretty cool profile on a driver uh, I think that we all love, absolutely love. Um, but I'll keep that quiet because, uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be a surprise when it is seen. But always enjoy trying to give... Uh, some background or details or fill in some areas for folks uh, on projects like that when you know that they are not uh, racers or into racing so much. And so it's not uncommon to get calls like that. So always enjoy that, trying to share our sport with folks who want to hopefully celebrate it um, in the correct way. So, yeah, and hey, we're two days away from 100 Days to Indy debuting on the CW and then shortly thereafter on Vice. And I'm going to continue holding and uh, saying I'm not really going to talk about the debut episode uh, because I really do want y'all to share your uh, unswayed views of it, knowing that you are IndyCar's hardcore fans. But yeah, I cannot wait. It'll be interesting just to see... I'm sure y'all will pick up on everything that I saw and more um, that can hopefully be improved. I already provided uh, some of that info to one of the senior members of the series. But anyways, uh, let's get going to Chris Kalewick. And for once, I didn't say Kalewick. Uh, yay, me! Kind of, sort of. Uh, MP, silly question. A lot of this, during the races, I see drivers have drink bottles and straws and whatnot with whatever they got in it. How do they keep the liquid cool? You say, I assume there's no AC or cooling unit, as this would add weight. Are they driving around drinking hot water? Uh, well, you might as well make tea. And you say, thanks for answering my silly questions. Well, thanks for uh, forgiving my mispronunciations of your last name, Chris. Uh, yeah. So where they the bladders tend to get placed, um, yeah, uh, we'll heat up. But yeah, they'll start off cold for sure, and you'll get cold for a while, but after a while, you're going to get warm. So uh, I guess it's a question of, do you try and drink it fast so you get it while it's cool compared to on a hot and steamy day wanting to drink something and your body just telling you drink, and you do, and you're like, hey, that's 8,000 degrees. So um, yeah, there is no real cooling uh, that I know of. Uh, but if there is someone that has figured out how to do that, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, maybe I need to go on a hunt. I don't know. Uh, Eric Franklin, say, MP, I know you have nothing to do with the NBC broadcast, but your podcast seems to be the only outlet that might draw attention to the poor coverage the sport is getting. Uh, he said, I read that there were 253 passes for position at Long Beach. We saw about 10 of those during the race. I'm not sure what the answer is, but do you have any suggestions? There's what I do for a living, which is tr trying to watch a race and observe a lot of things that are both kind of public facing and also smaller trends that I think might be interesting. I might see them while they're developing in the moment. I might be late to the party and pick up on it 10 or 20 laps later, whatever. Ultimately each racing series has a different approach to how things get presented no, that's the duh Pruitt. We knew that part, but I just I'm stating that because it's maybe something that gets overlooked. If you look at Formula One, as rich as it is, well, they indeed have layers of coverage. Sky Sport, for example, that we get on ESPN, where they probably have as many people broadcasting as an IndyCar team has crew members on one of their entries like it is crazy where you go hey there's five people <laughs> five people on pit lane talking about a thing oh now we're gonna cut over here and here's four more different people talking about something else and hey we're gonna go up to the booth where we got three people there and a guest and hey what about over here and you're like no joke it is phenomenal how many people you will find on just a Sky Sports broadcast. And it seems like redundancies too, where you go, all right, here's our driver analyst who's going to 
talk about this and you go, cool, we're going to cut to the other driver analyst and there's another one and here's this one. And you go, how many of there are you? It's great. But at times I find myself getting a little bit lost because there are so many voices, so many people, so many angles, if not crazy redundancy. But the thing that gives us is the ability for them to drill into every little thing. And seemingly there is nothing missed. Uh, Valtteri's Alfa Romeo did this one thing in one corner on one lap. Like if anything unique happens, seemingly they capture it. It's another aspect too, where passing in formula one doesn't happen a lot. So when it does happen, Hey, the guy who was in eighth, wow. They passed the guy that was in seventh. I guarantee you, you are going to get a replay. You're going to get a second replay in slow-mo. You might get a third replay from a different angle. Uh, someone might go to the Telestrator and tell us how the most boring-ass normal pass we've ever seen was somehow worthy of three or four different replays at different speeds and angles and a let's Telestrate this, that, and the other. And Wow. I, just, I wonder if some of that, Eric, is not saying you watch F1 and are therefore sending this in based on that being a standard or that you expect things to be held to. But I know that when I look at IndyCar, you got three people in the booth, uh, host and Lee, two driver analysts, and then on pit lane, uh, Marty Snyder, Kevin Lee, if I'm forgetting someone else, I'm probably forgetting someone else, but like, it's not a big staff and I can tell you without question, because I see it and I respect it. Kevin Lee busts his behind to do research coming into every event, to look at all the trends, to think of the ideas and think of the thises and that's to discuss whatever little notes that might add value. Same with Marty for sure. Um, they also do their best during the race to look at things, spot trends, listen to radios, team communications. Hey, so-and-so said they're going to do this thing that's different than the others. So we're looking for them to pit in two laps and they're going to go to a different strategy. And I just share that I'm with you. I, I hear you. I would love in a two hour broadcast for more attention to be paid to some of these epic fights going on in 15th place or wherever else I would just suggest that if you look at the money at the disposal in formula one, you get every little thing that happens ever <laughs> seemingly you do. And if they miss it during the race, they've got 47 hours of post-race analysis going on, and you're like, oh my god, okay, I get it. It's just one race. This has turned into, you know, a six-month court case of every piece of evidence ever, of every little thing. Okay. We don't have those resources. And so, I know some of the people that make the TV happen, I can tell you, they love this stuff. They're crazy passionate, and they're always trying to do better. With IndyCar being more popular, with more revenue coming in from advertisers wanting to be a part of the IndyCar broadcasts, with more viewers watching, which would then bring more advertisers, more value to get out of those advertisers, more money coming in because of the bigger audience size, everything scales up. So I'm not saying NBC couldn't do better, of course. I'll do better. But the real answer that comes to mind here, Eric, is yes, would love to see all 253 passes captured as they happen and analyzed and replayed and you name it. And again, this would be the, the perfect place to get to. But for where IndyCar is at at the moment, needs to be more, more success, more money, more popularity for NBC Sports to say, cool, we're adding two more pit reporters. We're adding a special analyst of this. We don't have a telestrator. 
you know, I know that they of course can draw on a screen, but I'm just saying we don't have dedicated. Oh, and we're going to this person who's going to break down this pass and show us how so-and-so broke five feet deeper going to this corner than they've ever done. And we've pulled footage from previous laps where they braked at this point. See here, let me draw and show you how they did this one thing, right? Resources, uh, resources come with dollars, come with popularity. That's it, my friend. Uh, let me see. Let me scroll through here. Uh, Dylan Darty. Not sure if we've got a question from you before, Dylan. If so, I apologize for my faulty memory. And if not, welcome to the show. So we all know about Jack Harvey's ride being in imminent danger at RLL, but what about Elio? Say three races in, and he said one top 10, zero lead lap finishes, two full course yellows from him on lap one for him being a part of things. Um... I would be very surprised, Dylan, if Elio is back in the 06 next year. I thought that might have been the case this year. Uh, but there's a decision that, nope, we're going to do another year. I really do not think we are going to see him back in that 06 next year. Could he be back for the Indy 500 in a third entry? Uh, I believe that for as long as he wants to do the Indy 500, Meyershank Racing will offer it to him. And if he were to decide he wanted to go elsewhere, someone else offered him a ride, might go somewhere else. But I'm confident in saying that barring Elio going on a wicked winning streak and or just being a pest on the podium every two or three races, but barring Elio giving the team no possible reason to part ways, um, I think this is going to be the last one, last full-time season. Um, there's more I could tell you, but I'm going to hold off on that for right now. But yeah, um, of course I'd love to see things go super well for him, from Barber on, and again, to just prove like, nope, there you'd be silly to not extend another full season offer to me. If that were to not happen, I just would want him to have some joy to close out this season. I don't think I'm saying anything anyone else wouldn't be feeling as well. Um, if this is his last full-time season, I wouldn't want it to end on a, on a missed shot. Per se, I'd want him to at least have a good result here, there, a couple good results where you go, yep, that's the guy. Love that guy, and thank you for everything you've done. Uh, let me see. Got a couple folks asking about uh, why is Ed Carpenter racing in such a bad way? Why is Marshank racing in such a bad way? Uh, need to get a hold of Shank to try and get an answer there because I spoke to Elio and Simon about that at the open test and uh, just hoping to get a little bit more insight from the boss. But the one thing you point to is you go, well, hey, they're in a technical alliance with Andretti. They get all the same setups, all the data, every everything. So they should be identical performance capability-wise to the mothership. On paper, yes. Keep in mind that a setup sheet isn't going to make the car fast. Uh, the driver and race engineer have to make that setup work for that individual driver. Instead of turning this into some long technical dissertation, if Pagano prefers a car with a, a certain type of balance under acceleration, and it gives him confidence that the rear tires powering out of a corner, going to stick, give him great acceleration. It's not going to slide sideways on him. Or the front of the car isn't going to understeer and, and wash out on him. That setup sheet, main setup sheet, coming from an Andretti Autosport to start the weekend, probably going to get minor changes to it to suit Simon's known preference. And I'm again just making something up here about front and rear. Um, 
So this isn't a case of a carbon copy setup on all four Andretti cars and both Shank, Meyer Shank cars and everybody just being on the same thing. I think I've used this uh, parallel before, but it's like a pair of shoes, right? We all may wear, have almost identical sized feet, but there's a difference between someone with a size 11 foot having to jam it into a 10 and a half. Fits. It's not like painful, but it just doesn't feel exactly right. You're never fully comfortable with each step. It's the same thing with chassis setups. Hey, Colton Herta might have the magic setup and he's on pole by a mile and he's a rocket. Well, all we got to do is copy all the settings from his car over to Elio's or Kirkwood's or whomever's. And you go, unless they like identical handling. And that's a rarity. You can sometimes get teammates that are really close and, Hey, I might make a tiny little tweak to the setup for my needs, but boy, we, we like almost the same things and can use almost the same setups. Unless you have that, what works perfectly for Colton might not be something that Simon can drive or Elio can drive to that same exact peak, crazy fast level. And so it's, having to make little modifications and trying to find the right modifications to get Simon, Elio, uh, Devlin, whomever, to that similar place. So that's just a little bit of the, the misnomer here. I know, uh, Jameen Tuttle, you're asking about this. Um, i trying to think who else. Tim Vaughn as well. Hey, Tim. Uh, and I think a couple of other ones as well. Uh, someone asking about Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan too. Um, on the Andretti MSR side specifically, there's no disrespect meant here, but I would say if you look at Andretti's three top drivers, they have three, holy cow, race engineers, right? Super talented race engineers on the Meyer Shank side, same exact pedigree. I don't know. I mean, Garrett on Simon's car, that guy is freaking awesome. Like, truly awesome. Dave Seifert, crazy highly respected on Elio's car. Exact pedigree as some of the others? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But even if you took Colton's engineer and moved him over to Simon's car or whomever else, like you go, hey, all right, great. But is that a guarantee that they're going to speak the same exact language, find every little kernel of speed and be just as effective as Colton? Not necessarily. So again, this is maybe the part that in this specific relationship that gets overlooked. The numbers don't make the car fast. It's the race engineer and the driver taking a base setup, making some adjustments to fit their that driver's needs, and then constantly making further adjustments as the track heats up or cools down, cloud cover, raw sun, used tires, new tires. Just there's so many variables and having to make those changes session by session, all of those changes being correct and awesome to be super fast. And if you're off to start the first session and Dreddy cars are in the top five and your Meyer Shank car is 21st, you are in the poop because you don't have many sessions to get it fixed. And instead of evolving and just making little tweaks to get a little bit better in the next session, you are now turning everything upside down to try and start over basically for the second session. And maybe you get much closer, which would be amazing, but you're now effectively a full session behind everyone else because you're having to start from scratch. And so you can just see, I assume some of you do this, if not everyone, I encourage you to do this. If you're an active follower of IndyCar, uh, tune into Peacock, watch the first practice sessions wherever. They'll have the timing information up uh, on the top left of the screen. But if you don't have it saved, uh, definitely pull up the IndyCar timing and scoring link. It's racecontrol.indycar.com. I think you have to sign up or whatever, but uh, maybe you don't. But 
that'll give you the live timing and scoring information as it happens. Every time a car goes across uh, start finish, lap time is updated to whatever the most recent one was, their best lap time, show you sector data for the road and street courses. It'll show you all kinds of cool stuff. But beyond just what the final session report happens to be showing you the rank of who was first, who was 27th or whatever, and their associated lap time, you can follow along watching the lap times as they happen, pick your favorite drivers, and just see where they start. Right? Hey, so-and-so is running top five. All right, cool. Um, looks like they're having a pretty good start to the weekend, rolling off the truck with something promising. Where do they stay? Do they stay in that area? Do they fall? It just gives you an idea of how their session is going because the track is going to get more rubber put down. Cars are obviously going to get faster. How is the team evolving as a whole or individual entries? You could see some that might start off not too impressive. You're like, oh, I thought that driver would be, you know, closer to the front. Maybe they missed it a little bit to start. Try a couple things and okay, hey, by the end of the session, they got it roughed into pretty good shape and so-and-so was P6 or something like that. You go, okay, cool. It's where you look at some of those where you go, ooh, okay, you know, that's a champion or a 500 winner or something. Or, hey, that's a good team. You go, ooh, all right, both their drivers are outside the top 15. You know, there could be an answer for one. Maybe they didn't get a, a newer tire run towards the end to get a read on things. And, you know, there could be some extenuating circumstances. Look at the lap count, right? Most teams have about the same number of laps that they run by the end of the session, but is there a driver that you're rooting for who didn't have a great opening practice session? You look over and see, oh, they turned six laps. <laughs> Maybe it was or wasn't you know, covered on the broadcast, but that'll tell you, okay, they had some sort of problem. But a lot of things to parse. The thing I'm looking for always, more than any other thing, in opening practice, this is for IndyCar, IMSA, wherever else, is who's in the bottom half of the field that shouldn't be? And is it one driver from a multi-car team that's a high-quality team? You go, okay, well, clearly there was something that didn't work for them. Whatever setup direction they took, all right, they got some work to do. But if their teammates are towards the front or one of the, whatever, something where you go, okay, the team as a whole isn't out to lunch, right? But if you go, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> the the whole team or the majority of the team is middle of the pack towards the back of the pack, you go, yeah, Houston, we got a problem here. And so it's those folks where you go, okay, the narrative of your weekend was just written in the first practice session. And now, since the way IndyCar does its road and street course races, for the most part is we go out once mid to late Friday afternoon, Come back Friday morning, second practice session. Then we go into qualifying. You know the teams who, based on where they finished Friday, their specific entries and those drivers, we know which ones are going to have long Friday nights because they're having to figure out where did we go wrong? Did we start off in a bad place? Did we make some changes on our run plan that sent us down the wrong path? Where did we, what did we do? How did we miss it? The frustrating part, I mean, if these things were obvious, you'd spot it right away and go, aha, fix this. We'll go back out and look at that. We're P1 in the first practice session. It ain't that easy. I wish it was, but always looking for who hit the mark, who missed the mark, and then you go into that second practice session and go, so do the ones who showed that they had something on Friday, were they able to make the right adjustments overnight to adapt and stay in that place? Did some of the leaders from Friday fall back? Ooh, whatever you did, that wasn't the right way. The ones who missed it, it's rare where you see a person who's 20th on Friday end up first on Saturday morning. But can they get up to 8th, 5th, 6th? You go, oh, wow, you found it, but... You go straight into qualifying after this, and maybe there's a morning warm-up before the race. Who knows? But it's going to be a struggle for you to find enough additional pace that you didn't have to begin with to bridge that fifth or sixth place to get to first. So, anyways, 
totally sure why I wandered down the free practice one thing, but uh, if I just told you anything of value you didn't already know, well, look at that. Uh, hopefully, um, your free podcast here was of some value. Uh, let's see. Uh, Patrick Reed's Comics says, we are three years into the indie version of the Drive for Diversity. So far, the only woman in the series been the ones who've been around well before this started. And no one of color yet, question mark. I know they've done uh, things at a little bit lower levels, but is it working? How are they doing? So mentioning the women side of this, uh, race for diversity and change was instrumental in Beth Peretta, Peretta Autosport, and Simona Di Silvestro getting their start in IndyCar. Indy 500 back in, what was that, 2021? I apologize, my brain's a little fuzzy, but instrumental in making that happen. <clears throat> Beth found sponsors for all that, so I'm not saying this is something that Penske Entertainment paid for outright or anything like that, but... Um, with a Penske supplied car and race engineer and, you know, all the other things to go racing. This was something where Penske entertainment spent a good chunk of money to make that happen. Stick with the women's side of this. That to me has been the one glaring area of omission for me. I am beyond happy that Roger is supporting two young black drivers and Ernie Francis Jr., who's in Indian NXT in his second season there, has come back to supporting, fully supporting Miles Rowe, did in the first year. Miles was their first full-season driver, uh, was dropped but then brought back on uh, for last season and is now kicking butt and leading definitively uh, the middle tier of the USF championships presented by Cooper Tires and USF, uh, USF Pro 2000, uh, this being a Force Indy slash Penske Entertainment funded effort. Um, I do wish that Jamie Chadwick was not the only woman racing uh, on the American Junior Open Wheel Ladder in a team or position of real you know priority and again i'm not saying she's the only one i'm just saying that in terms of a driver where you go she has shown promise and we think that she could go someplace very thankful obviously that andretti autosport dhl uh, and the other partners on that car have gotten jamie here and are trying to uh, provide her all the tr training that's needed to hopefully one day get to indycar but that's in Dirty Autosport. That's not Penske Entertainment. That's not the race for quality and change. As the race for quality and change was established, it was very straightforward in its execution, being drivers of color. Two black kids representing this program. Whether it is a black woman uh, pick whichever race you would like to see represented but whether it's a woman or someone of a non-african american descent that side i have yet to see become part of the race for quality and change profile of what they're trying to do are they limiting things to only black kids? I don't think so, but that's where they have started, and they certainly received a number of questions, and I would say heat, and deservedly so, for, so this is awesome. Miles Rowe absolutely deserves, you know, this shot, and he has taken it and run with it, proven that Penske Entertainment was a 1,000% correct in saying, we're getting behind you first and you keep giving us a reason to stay behind you and fund everything you're doing. So again, that part is perfect. Ernie Francis Jr., bit of a risk, right? Uh, minimal amount of open wheel experience before they took him straight to Indy NXT. As expected, he's had a massive learning curve to try and gain compared to the other kids who've 
uh, been doing open wheel pretty much their whole career, and he has shown improvement so far in the limited amount of Indy NXT races we've seen, but I have not seen anything that says Ernie is our next Indy NXT champion, so he'd need at least a third year in the series, I would say, for us to get a proper idea whether he's destined for stardom and open wheel racing. Miles, I would say, is showing us without a doubt this kid uh, on the way his season's going so far. Should be an Indy NXT next year, and before long should be an IndyCar. Just based on what he's done, if we follow that trend in the direction he is taking it, this kid has the chops to get to IndyCar if he continues delivering and learning like he has been. Ernie? Still a significant question mark as to whether he has the open wheel chops to go fight with your New Gardens and McLaughlins and O'Wards and so on. Needs more time to tell us that, though. But I do wonder, where where are the women? Um, I never forget. There might be a lot of boys, a lot of men in motor racing predominantly uh, us males uh, half the world is not us males so if we're doing things to try and advance racing for equality and change that's the one area that when it was formed received some heat and i do need to check in with some of the leaders of this uh, more from the funding side to see what their vision happens to be. Uh, and I think we're coming up on what here in June, which June, July-ish, would, which would be three years in um, to get a feel. So, yeah, I am beyond pleased with what is happening and developing with Miles. Uh, that's all just on talent, right? Uh by chance the kid happens to be black uh the talent he has is universal he's letting us know that ernie need a little bit more time before we draw any uh harsher conclusions as to whether he's got it or he doesn't what are they going to do next um it seems like more could be done but it also seems like just being frank if they were to give ernie another year I think they're going to have to make that call middle of the season. I know we will only have a year and a half of Indy NXT experience by then. You got an idea, though, right? Uh, You're going to have an idea as to whether bankrolling another year is going to get him to a place where you go, aha, Um, the kid's got crazy talent. That is not a question. Not everybody, though, is built for open wheel racing. Not everybody clicks despite having crazy talent with open wheel racing. Same goes with open wheelers who don't always necessarily click and become phenomenal GT or prototype drivers kind of places where Ernie comes from. So this isn't so much a a conviction of the individual. It's just, you can be a seven time trans am champion. Like Ernie happens to be at a super young age. Doesn't mean you're going to be an IndyCar star or vice versa. So, yeah, uh, and if by chance they do not continue with Ernie, what could or would that lead to? Uh, could they look to hopefully expand uh, their vision a bit to include some other people in this diversity effort? I would hope so. Uh, I really and truly would. Um, let me see. Jeremiah Morrell, how you doing? Moral. Sorry, brother. I'm always going to say Morrell. I don't know why. Jeremiah Morrell, please uh, give your amazing bride, Sarah, my love as well. Um, see, almost 200,000 people attended Long Beach. If marketed correctly, IndyCar can absolutely be a world-class event. I think Southern California could support an additional race. Places like Texas and Laguna Seca need to start to move in the right direction. ASAP. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I don't know if another race in Southern California would be a, a smash unless it was another street race. And, you know, it would have to be something special for sure. Uh, 
for the folks at Long Beach to not throw wobbly about that. Just, yeah, uh, at a traditional road course or oval, we haven't really seen those take off, uh, nor are there any that's really near that we haven't been to before. Um, you know, Fontana obviously is going through some changes, even if there were no changes going on. Nobody turned up for our stuff there, unfortunately. But one of the things here, Jeremiah, speaking with uh, Penske Corp president Bud Denker, who's also been a who's the head of the Detroit Grand Prix and just been heavily involved in the event side, uh, spoke with him at Long Beach, said, hey, keep hearing you guys might want to take a more active role in things, just in a general sense. And he said, you know, he, he didn't deny that and gave a little bit of uh, input on that. But Texas is owned by someone else. Laguna Seca is owned by someone else. Portland's owned by someone else. There, you know, there are a number of tracks where you go, okay, attendance is a bit light. Uh, they're still going to get their sanction fee. But, you know, that to me is not the most important thing. It's IndyCar looking healthy and having a truly healthy crowd and growing. The thing that I would hope Penske Entertainment will do or continue doing or however it gets done is a track that we go to and have a multi-year contract with, um, we need to play a greater role in helping. What can we do to help promote? What can we do from an infrastructure standpoint? What can we do to make things more enticing? What can we do to get more people here? Whatever it is. What can we do to help you? I think the series, Jeremiah, has already recognized and I hope is already starting to act more and more from a mindset of us just showing up and hoping that y'all did a great job and we'll have a bunch of people turn up. We need to get rid of the hope. And for some of the events, you don't need any quote intervention because they're already doing a great job hey i mean of course we could always try and fit more people into road america so that there's not a single patch of grass visible to the eye because there's people standing and right but just saying like hey road america yeah we don't really need to do anything (laughs) you guys are awesome you kick ass tons of people to some of y'all that aren't really doing that what can we do like gateway Worldwide Technology Raceway was a really shining example uh, once we returned there. And for the first couple of years, Bomberito Automotive Group, Chris Blair, everybody there. Amazing, amazing output. Great crowds, great everything. It's tapered off the last couple of years, right? It's not an opinion thing. You look at the stands and go, dang, these were once pretty darn full. Now... Not necessarily so. What can we do? Like, they're great at promotions. We know that because they've demonstrated that. But what can we do as a series to help? Uh, You tell us or you want us to throw some ideas. I don't know. But what can we do to get those stands more full? We're all in. Give us ideas. We'd love to help. Like, I just think that is something they've apparently started to demonstrate, Jeremiah. And I think the more that they do this, uh, the better off that we are. Um, Will Velkoff, I see you also had a question here about uh, Myershank Racing's pace gap. Uh, what else? Let me get to the last couple here. And um, yeah, we will uh, we will just say goodbye to the episode. Um, Debbie Lee. What are your thoughts on IndyCar pushing the Pato versus Joseph narrative? Um, yeah. Uh, to me, those things aren't items to be pushed. They either exist or don't exist. Uh, those two have radically different personalities. That's another overstatement. Um, but they're the same guy. Like, burning fury inside of them, wanting to destroy everything that is in their way. Uh, Pato does that in a more demonstrative way, right? And I'm thankful for that. Joseph is, you know, the the white hot flame 
type instead of the big raging red orange fire uh, but they're the same in that regard um but yeah uh that's more purely on the competitive side but yeah i mean what we need is three or four more races of these guys you know banging wheels fighting each other uh just raging to have something that's real to go whoa this is cool this is a real thing i don't know if i would say there is enough has been enough to even pretend that there's a pato versus joseph thing uh not at all uh f1 henrik asks uh why don't we have standing starts have they ever been considered uh yes used to do them in champ car latter stages of champ cars existence we did them in was it 2013 for the first time in the modern day ntt indycar series i think we did them for one or two years um that kind of went away because they were not great more often than not um yeah i mean i love standing starts from the junior open wheel series that i spent a lot of time in uh, the Formula Atlantic series, it was standing starts and just loved them, loved them, loved them. But rolling starts, that, that's been our tradition for a really long time. Uh, Jeremy Davis, we're going to close on you, pal. You say, MP, need to know your thoughts on the McLaren-Ganassi feud at Long Beach. I felt that Dixon was in the right. Pato overforced the position in the corner. Curious on your thoughts. And also, IndyCar's no call on the penalty after... Uh, all the wrecks and destruction caused by Pato. Yeah. I am reminded by one of Mario Andretti's great quotes about, and if you've never seen this, go straight to Google, uh, go straight to YouTube and find, uh, Jesus, 1979. Uh, I believe it was the Dijon Prenois series, a uh, series Dijon Prenois circuit in France. Rene Arnoux, R-E-N-E-A-R-N-O-U-X, Rene Arnoux driving for Renault at home in France versus one of my all-time heroes uh, from Practice France, a.k.a. Quebec, that being Gilles Villeneuve driving for Ferrari. Uh, at that point in time, two young, hard, hard challengers. Uh, the, the finish to that race is legendary in formula one because these guys are going around this crazy fast flowing formula one circuit and just banging wheels like it's days of thunder nascar but in formula one cars at again a zillion miles an hour and there were a number of folks because even back then formula one still you know the world's most popular form of racing still super elitist there were a number of folks, and I was like eight years old at the time, but I'm just, you know, read about it a lot, gone back historically and dove into it a lot. There were a lot of people at the time who were highly critical about the two of them and the danger and, oh my God, and you, the disrespect and disrepute brought onto Formula One and think of Fangio and Moss and all the ones who drove cleanly and this is absurd behavior and taking each other's lives um, in your hands and risking and just like, right lost their minds at seeing two Formula One drivers just banging wheels over and over and over again, trading positions and just going wild and you know sliding all over the place like nothing you've ever seen before. Just insane. And all the quote purists and stewards of the sport seem to just absolutely tear them apart. Mario Andretti had a great quote, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, ah, that was just a couple of young lines pawing at each other. Share that Jeremy, because that's what I thought of not with Dixie and Pato together as young lions pawing at each other. Dixie's obviously not a young lion, not an old lion, but he's definitely still a lion. But I put Pato in that position of being a young lion where he's going to paw. He's going to take some risky shots here and there, and they're not all going to work out. Certainly one worked out at Long Beach. The other one didn't. Um, was he at fault? Yes. Uh, was it something worthy of a penalty? no I mean, it was bad etiquette right bad driving etiquette 
came from way far back. Dixon never thought he was going to try to pass him there and from that far back and that late in the corner, right? Um, but that's Pato. Uh, that's who he is. Young line. He's going to paw. Even if it's from way the heck back and way late and Dixon's already, you know, starting to navigate the corner. Hey, there's a space. I'm going to go for it. And he did. So, again, in the clean world of motor racing where everyone is nice and never touches one another and everything is given clean space and so on and so forth, such things would never happen. Fortunately, racing isn't clean like that all the time. And so, yeah, Dixie had every right to feel wronged. Pato, being that young lion, saw nothing wrong with what he did was in no particular mood to apologize, and I totally get where he came from. Um, I would hope, presented with the same thing next season, he would think twice about it because he could have come off far worse than he did in that attempt with Dixon. That's not something you're not going to win the race right there and that early in the championship, right? And so his day afterwards went terribly um so again did this young lion learn something from it i gotta believe so and i think he'll come out of this uh better for having uh gone through that even if it pissed off dixie and had like some really surprisingly like wow stuff from uh some of dixie's uh country people um yeah i mean most kiwis that i know are, are pretty cool and and sweet and kind-hearted but I mean, I guess you can't expect everybody to be that way. But Jeremy Davis, the world's number one Chip Ganassi racing fan slash Scott Dixon fan, thank you for sending this in. Thanks to all of you for sending in your questions. Uh, hope to have a guest show here this week and maybe one more with somebody from the USF Championships to learn a little bit more about what they're doing. And other than that, appreciate you. Thanks to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Discount Tire. I'll speak to you soon.